So this, this, might, this might seem an unusual thing to say straight out of the gates, but there, there are some serious downsides to parsing out these long, winding, great stories of Scripture into kind of week-by-week, bite-sized chapter segments like we do. Um, that's how we've been going through Genesis. And, you know, that's mostly good. You know, there's, there's a lot of merit in studying Scripture that way. We get to go really slow. We get to kind of pull apart the customs, understand the principles underneath, learn from the virtues, you know, apply them. This is all really lovely. This is all really helpful. There's reason we do this. Uh, but we also kind of lose the details of the stories from weeks gone by. They start to fade from front of our mind. And we start to actually train ourselves to think of these stories just in their own confined segments. And the text that we're going to be engaging with today just can't be thought of that way. It needs to be understood as part of the larger, grand, winding, beautiful narrative that is the story of Abram and Sarai and God speaking to them. So kind of before we get to Genesis 17, which is what we'll be talking about today, here's a little bit of a previously on before we get there. So Genesis 12 is when we first meet this character, Abram, and God, seemingly out of nowhere, goes to this man, communicates with him, and makes a promise with him. He says, my, my intention is to bless all of the nations through you, and here's this mechanism of how I'm going to do it. I'm going to greatly increase your line, which is already an unusual thing to say, because he and his wife were both really old and had yet to have children, it seemed couldn't. He said, I'm going to give you a particular land, and we are going to be an intimate relationship with each other, and I am going to be an intimate relationship with your line forever. And I'm going to bless all of the nations through this relationship and through you. And now the, the very first hearers of this story um, would have been the Hebrews in the wilderness right after they were released from slavery in Egypt. And that, those details enough would have been an, enough for them to perk up a little bit. You see, they were plenty familiar with kind of pagan gods of adjacent cultures. But nowhere in their experience had they ever heard of a God who was so deeply interested in blessing people. And in no other instance had they heard of a God who had made a covenant with humanity. Those were both wholly distinct and unique ideas. So then as we move forward in this story, we, we read about Abram's complicated family situation. Um, his infertility is confirmed. He has estrangement from other sects of his family, which all seems to continue to, to frustrate the, the fulfillment of the promise of this covenant. And then in chapter 15, after all of that, we hear God reiterate those same words. I will greatly multiply your line. Like, I'm reiterating this covenant idea to you. And Abram responds in kind, like, look, I'm still, I'm still childless. Are, are you talking about my, my relative, Eleazar? Like, is your, is your idea that you're going to kind of bring all of this to fruition through him? And God, compassionately, in a moment of clarity, says, No. This will come through your body, which led us to Genesis 16, which 
we talked about last week, where it's still not happening, right? Like a, a child is still not coming through Abram, and God is, God is silent for a minute, and it's frustrating. And so after that silence, after what seems like a frustrated promise, Sarai suggests, maybe, maybe I'm not supposed to be the one who helps you carry on this line. And she suggests having a child with her uh, servant, Hagar. And so that's what happens. And it leads to a lot of bitterness um, and frustration in Hagar. It leads to a lot of bitterness and sadness in Sarai. And Hagar runs away into the wilderness. And God then meets Hagar where she is and very compassionately speaks with her and calls her back into the home of Abram and Sarai. And that's where 16 ends. That's where we pick up today. Well, you have to understand between where that ended and where we start today, 13 years of time have passed. For the entirety of those 13 years, Abram and Sarai believe that they did the right thing and that God is silent. Well, now in our text today, God breaks his silence and he kind of rewrites the narrative and gives life to it in a whole different way. So, we're caught up. Let's now hear a reading from Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the sovereign God. Walk before me and be blameless. Then I will confirm my covenant between me and you, and I will give you a multitude of descendants. Abram bowed down with his face to the ground, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer will your name be Abram. Instead, your name will be Abraham, because I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you extremely fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will descend from you. I will confirm my covenant as a perpetual covenant between me and you. It will extend to your descendants after you throughout their generations. I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you. I will give the whole land of Canaan, the land where you are now residing, to you and your descendants after you as a permanent possession. I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep the covenantal requirement I am imposing on you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my requirement that you and your descendants after you must keep. Every male, uh, every male among you must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin. This will be a reminder of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, whether born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not one of your descendants. They must indeed be circumcised, whether born in your house or bought with money. The sign of my covenant will be visible in your flesh as a permanent reminder. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin will be cut off from his people. He has failed to carry out my requirement. And God said to Abraham, as for your wife, you must no longer call her Sarai. Sarah will be her name. I will bless her and will give you a son through her. I will bless her and she will become a mother of nations. 
kings of countries will come from her. Then Abram bowed down his face to the ground and laughed as he said to himself, Can a son be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Can Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. Sarah, your wife, who is going to bear you a son, and you will name him Isaac. I will confirm my covenant with him as a perpetual covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will indeed bless him, make him fruitful, and give him a multitude of descendants. He will become the father of 12 princes. I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this set time next year. When he finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. Abraham took his son Ishmael and every male in his household, whether born in his house or bought with money, and circumcised them on that very same day, just as God had told him to do. Now Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised. His son Ishmael was 13 years old when he was circumcised. Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised on the very same day. All the men of his household, whether born in his household or bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, now we pause, we listen in this moment of silence. Speak to us about your word. Father, give your people what they need. Amen. Now, for as much as there is here, which is plenty, uh, there's, there's likely one prominent thing lingering on many of your minds. Um, perhaps it's something you're like, really uncomfortably bracing yourself to hear about. Um, perhaps you're just like overwhelmed with curiosity and you're really weirdly excited to hear it addressed, um, circumcision, why? But this question, why circumcision, what is this, has to be asked in the right question. I was so adamant that we get the fuller picture of what's going on between God and these people and the covenant relationship before we pose this question. You see, if we just isolate chapter 17, and we separate it from the whole as its own little segment, we start to ask the wrong questions of circumcision, and we start to think about it in purely physiological terms, and we ask physical questions like, why in the world would God be interested in this? Like, he designed men, so why would he be interested in babies being changed? Um, or thinking purely physically, like, well, obviously this can only be done to men, so is God more, like, interested in men? Does he really only intend to use men? And so when we ask these purely physiological questions, we get, surprise, surprise, purely physiological and wrong answers. 
For instance, I've heard all of these things before. Like, well, it was probably like a hygiene thing in the ancient world. Like, that's really nice. Or like, maybe God was like humbling some of these patriarchs by making it smaller for them. I don't know. Um, or like, maybe God was communicating, I intend to use men more than women, and this is how you'll know it. Um, again, these are all things I have heard before. These are all answers we've tried to throw at this text because it seems just so bizarre. Um, so what's the right way to answer it then? How are we supposed to address this question? What's the proper context? Well, like I kind of suggested at the beginning, this is a grand, winding, complicated story of covenant. That's, that's the whole ball of wax. And chapter 17 gives us, in, in pretty clear structure, th this is one thing it does really well, it gives us a clear structure of the terms of the covenant. And I think we need to kind of parse it out in those three segments. Um, and they're in our text. There are three distinct segments of chapter 17 where God says, as for me, and then he turns to Abraham and says, as for you, and then he ends with, as for Sarah. And so you can kind of throw up that initial chart. So this is how we need to think of chapter 17. This is the terms of the covenant as explained. And so God speaks first. He takes that first speaking role and says, all right, here's, here's my part. Here's what I'm going to accomplish in this covenant agreement. He says, first, I will give you a multitude of descendants. This is the third time he's saying it. He says, I will make you extremely fruitful. What's kind of cool about the language of multitude and fruitful is it's the same word of the initial imperative in the garden to be fruitful and multiply. And now he's saying, in fact, I'm going to make that happen in you. Like I told you to do it, and now I'm going to be the one to actually make it happen. He then says, I will confirm this covenant with you and your descendants. I will give you the land of Canaan. I will be your God, and I will be the God of your descendants. Okay? So that's the first segment. That's what God communicates to Abram. These are the terms of the agreement uh, that I am committing myself to. And then he pivots, and he starts talking to Abraham. And he says, as for you, the first thing he asks of him is, walk before me and be blameless. Now the walk uh, and immediately is supposed to remind us of the kind of relationship that was enjoyed in the garden where Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. It was just this picture of very close, tight-knit relational intimacy. And then when we see be blameless and we think sinlessness immediately. Like, well, of course that's impossible. The Hebrew language isn't actually trying to communicate that. Uh, being blameless in this context connects much more with the walking motif. Um, and the Hebrew actually suggests a wholeness in integrity, loyalty. Like, walk with me and be loyal to me. Walk with me and show me integrity. Walk with me and let's just enjoy wholeness in our relationship. Let's not fracture this thing again. So that's the first thing he asks of Abram. The next thing he says is, your name will be changed to Abraham. In this agreement, that's part of it, which seems pretty odd. In Hebrew, it's a little bit more helpful. Abram just means father, um, and Abraham means father of multitudes. So his very name 
will be a constant reminder for him and those he communicates his name to that this covenant is happening. And then the last of his terms is circumcise yourself and every male under your care and circumcise newborn males on the eighth day. Okay, that's Abram's part of the agreement. And then the last segment, as for Sarai, he says, I will bless her. She will be the mother of nations. Kings will come from her. He also changes her name. He says, from now on, Sarah will be her name. Um, this one's a little bit more difficult than Abram in the Hebrew. Sarai just means princess, roughly. And Sarah means roughly princess. So we don't get the meaning behind the name change in the same way. Uh, probably what was happening is just it's reiterating the promise that kings will indeed come from her. Like she is now a royal mother and kings are going to come from her. But I think what is more significant in the naming of Sarah in this text. She's, she's the only woman in the Bible to be given a new name by God. That already sets her apart. Her age, her name, and even the time and place of her death are all details we get in Scripture, which is far more life information than we get about any other woman in all of Scripture, which is particularly ironic when you consider that in chapter 16, Sarah essentially removed herself from the narrative. After years of frustrating inability to have a child, she says, maybe, maybe you're intended to have a child with someone else. And she removes herself from the narrative. And it's in this space that God mentions her for the first time. After 13 years of silence, after watching this child, Ishmael, grow up to a young teenager, believing that Sarah is no longer a part of the story, believing that's true about herself, God mentions her name. In fact, he gives her a new name. He reestablishes her in the narrative. He picks her up from the heap and honors her place in the story. That's really lovely. And he says, she will bear a son named Isaac this time next year, and I will confirm my covenant with him. Okay, so this, this what we have right here, this is the broader picture of what's happening in chapter 17, okay? Remember, think of all of this as the terms of the covenant as God is presenting them, and he's decided this is the mechanism by which I intend to bless the entire world. I'm going to make you an enormous nation, and through that, the world will be blessed. My plan of redemption runs through this. And we, we can admit, as we look at all of these terms, they all seem like pretty reasonable and really nice and all things that are most agreeable. But one does seem odd. So let's talk about circumcision. I've avoided it for 20 minutes. <laughs> Why circumcision at all? Like, why, why not a tattoo? Why not an earring? Why not a particular haircut? All of these things have been used by followers of God throughout history to kind of identify themselves as pious people. And, you know, not for nothing, this was supposed to be a visible sign of the covenant. And I can think of very few things that are less visible than this. In fact, it feels like he could have, you know, thrown a dart at the wall and figured out a lot more ways to make a visible sign of the covenant. So why this? Well, that's, that's just it. 
Think about the space in which this is most visible. Think about the environment where this particular sign would be the most obvious. It's inside a marriage, right? It's inside a, a covenant of its own. Marriage is the best picture of covenant that we have. And in, in fact, um, when, when these first Hebrew readers would have heard about circumcision, marriage would have been the first things on their mind. Um, the, the Hebrews actually weren't the first people group to practice circumcision. It wasn't overly common, but it was done in the ancient world. And in adjacent cultures, the most common use of circumcision, and this is, this is the worst thing ever, but it's true, it was a marriage ritual. The father of the bride would circumcise the groom in the lead up to the wedding as a sign that he was coming under the family protection and that the father was blessing their sexual union. It's, it's the worst thing I can imagine. <laughs> so circumcision then in these contexts was a visible sign both to the bride and to the groom that they were in a blessed union and that their families were joining together and claiming responsibility for one another. So the first hearers of this, the, the ancient Hebrews, they would have immediately read marriage ritual into circumcision. So that's first. I think I have a list too. Yeah, cool. Um, second, why circumcision? Well, remember what was the most reiterated and spoken miraculous promise of this covenant? It was a multitude of descendants, right? From, from a barren woman and an old man. If procreation is a major component of this covenantal mechanism that God is using, it makes a certain amount of sense then to mark a part of the reproductive process, right? Like, that is what is supposed to be called to front of mind when you think of circumcision. And to have generation after generation do this as well would kind of stand as a routine reminder that God has initiated this whole line, this whole line that we belong to. He started it with miraculous birth. He started it with miraculous intervention of his own power. Like, we wouldn't be here had it not been for the will of God frustrating the natural way of doing things. And, you know, I've heard this criticized. Well, then, like, well, why just men? Obviously, women are involved in the reproductive process as well. You know, arguably more so. Not arguably, Bailey, you're doing a lot. I'm doing nothing. Um, and, like, yeah, that, that, that's true. I hear that criticism. To which I would crassly say, is this something you do want? Like, are you feeling left out in some way? And then less crassly to say, well, yeah, it might be done to the man, but it is not sh only for the man, right? Like this is surely for both the man and woman together, just like Sarah is much as part of the story as Abram is. And the last thing I want to say about circumcision is perhaps the most obvious. It's upsetting, right? Like it's bloody. It seems offensive. It's humiliating. But might we wager a guess why God would put the shedding of blood in as a sign of his covenant faithfulness? As all things, even weirdly enough, the purpose of circumcision were fulfilled in Jesus. 
this covenant, God's plan to bless the nations, has this little sign intended to attune our minds to relational intimacy, miraculous birth, and the shedding of blood. All of which readied us for Jesus. And to this, you know, we could, we could look at this list and say, well, that's, that's all very interesting. What am I supposed to care about this? Uh, and, you know, it's kind of fun. Normally, we are asking that of uh, the, like, early church fathers activity, and we wonder, like, well, what do we do with that? We get to ask this question alongside them. This was a common question for the early church. Like, what do we do with circumcision? Is it something we're going to require for Gentile converts? How, how important is this? What role does it play for Christ followers? In fact, uh, Acts 15 highlights this council that was convened to address this very question. So, you know, my job was all that much easier because I just got to read what they decided to do with it. Peter and Paul were both there and stood up and said, no, I don't think this is something we need to require for Gentiles to do as a mark of salvation or as a way to gain salvation. Paul wrote about his decision in the letter to the Romans and he said this, For circumcision has its value if you practice the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. And he goes on to say, Circumcision is of the heart by the spirit and not by the letter. This person's praise is not from people, but from God. This idea, circumcision of the heart, is then what I think we should each take away from this. This is what is actually meaningful for each of us. When Paul speaks, he presents circumcision of the heart as this picture of integrity and wholeness and consistency. Like, who's actually pleasing God? The one who has, like, the physical mark but is entirely ignoring him? Or the one in whole, close relationship with him that doesn't? I mean, if you remember, it's what God first asked of Abraham, right? like his first term of the covenant. We get hung up on the cutting, understandably so, but the first thing asked of Abraham was, walk before me and be blameless. Be with me in union. Show me loyalty and integrity. Uh, Tim Keller uh, act, um, identified the activity of a truly circumcised heart as the one that desires to do what actually ought to be done. Right? Like that's, that's the picture of wholeness and integrity. What one ought to do is what they actually want to do. John Newton wrote a beautiful hymn, and he articulated this reality really well, where he said, Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined apart no more. Consistency, integrity, wholeness. And this idea, the circumcision of the heart, isn't just a New Testament ideal, right? Like, okay, we're, we're kind of sick of circumcision. Let's kind of put new language around it. No, this was spoken of all over the Old Testament. This was very much part of the first intention. In the, in the book of Deuteronomy, um, Moses is giving a series of sermons to all the people, men and women, before they enter into the promised land kind of reiterating the law to them, reiterating the heart of the law, kind of preparing them as the people of God to take residency in the promised land of the covenant. 
And all over Deuteronomy, he implores them to have circumcised hearts. In chapter 30, he even says, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts. He'll be the one who does the work. And the hearts of your descendants as well. So that you, and listen to this, so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. All your heart, all your soul. Again, this picture of wholeness. Right? This picture of integrity, this picture of completion. We will be united internally in responsiveness and sensitivity to and obedience to God. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah, when he was addressing the people who were living in open rebellion, that's the first thing he says to them, circumcise your hearts to the Lord. You're living in open rebellion. You're living an incongruent life. There's nothing whole or complete or there's no sign of integrity in your life. And the picture we get all throughout Scripture of those without a circumcised heart is that of a cheating spouse. Like, okay, it's like you're wearing a wedding ring, but you're having affair after affair after affair. Like the symbol says you're devoted. The lifestyle doesn't say the same thing. These are incongruent ideas. And sadly, but realistically, that's the, that's the human story. This is each and every single one of our stories. Our lives can often be characterized as inconsistent devotion at best. You know, faltering commitment, wavering obedience. We're fractured people. At the Jerusalem Council, that council in Acts 15, where they convened to talk about how to handle circumcision, when, when Paul stood up to speak, to argue that the Gentiles needn't be circumcised for salvation, this is what he said. Why are we placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. This church father, the Apostle Paul, was acknowledging in front of other church fathers that we can't bear the weight of the covenant. We were asked to walk blamelessly. We didn't. We haven't. We couldn't. And there's a penalty for that, for breaking the covenant. There, again, we had terms. There, there's, and there's a penalty for not living up to those terms. It was in verse 14, um, in a kind of funny turn of phrase, uh, where we see any who fail to carry out my requirement will be cut off from the people. The curse of the broken covenant is being cut off from this community. And as Jesus was crucified, we saw a man who spent his entire public ministry speaking of relational wholeness with the Father by demonstrating relational wholeness with the Father in his own activity. We see someone who came by miraculous birth. We see someone who came in the line of Abraham. And we see, for some, we see someone who was bloodied and humiliated. And then we see someone who cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus in himself was paying the curse of the broken covenant. He was cut off so that we might once again enjoy the covenant. 
invite us into integrity and wholeness and completion with our God, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined apart no more. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, I am just amazed how we see more of you every week. How can it be that you inserted yourself into everything for us? You have been this intentional from the beginning for us. Every sign, every marker, every word points to your plan to call us back into covenantal wholeness and relationship with you. How can it be? How lovely it is. So what choice do we have but to trust you? We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.